biblical-based Christianity draws on us to be disciples. And that's not an easy thing. You know, it's easy to have a, a visual of Jesus born at Bethlehem and, you know, once a year gather around the tree and look at the nativity scene. And that's our Jesus, that's our theology. But Christianity, New Testament, gospel-oriented, biblical Christianity is very compelling because it draws on our every being. And that's why that the Word of God, which is sown very often, does not produce fruit in the hearts of His children because of the cares and concerns of the world, because of one thing or another, the devil choking that Word, depriving of that word to sow abundant fruit because it doesn't find its root in good soil. The soil has been distorted. Okay? That's who we are. That's who we are. And this morning, we have some sobering thoughts regarding who we are and what God does with us ultimately so that we can bear His glory and His image while here on earth. Now ultimately we will be perfected in Christ. But that's coming yet. Although the apostle mentions the word glorification in the present tense. We can have trust and faith and hope that one day we shall be made like him. Without imperfection. We will see him as he is. We'll behold him with our own eyes and not the eyes of another. But we shall be made like him in that sense. But until that time, we are in a warfare. And until that time, we are subjected to vanity. Until that time, we find ourselves as empty vessels that need to be filled with direction, counsel, wisdom. Now, I know this runs against the grain of humanity and secular thinking. Because mankind is built up on a pedestal. Mankind has achieved. You know there's a hope of the world. You you do understand that, don't you? I go back to the days when I used to watch Star Trek. And in in many of those episodes, if you remember, there's goals, there's hopes that are set forth for mankind. He's finally achieved somewhere in the distant future, obviously. But what has he overcome? He's overcome the loss of the flesh. He's overcome the weaknesses of humanity. You see Captain Kirk achieving great goals in that movie. They have a hope that's achieved. Many people look to that hope of mankind to finally arrive at a certain point where they don't even need money. You know, they've reached that plateau. So I'm not denying the fact that the world, the world per se, has hope. But what I'm trying to say this morning, it's an empty one. It's a vain one. Because... It's an untrue one. Today we're going to learn a little bit about the difference between philosophy and truth. Between imagination and substance. Between a life that is just like a feather tossed to and fro with no real footing and substance. And a life that has destiny, if you will. A life that has purpose and meaning. You know, God gives you meaning. That's the idea that's presented by Brother Robert in trusting and obey, because there's no other way to understand your position in life, to know meaning, to know purpose, 
contrary to the infirmities under which you have been born. Well, I need to move on, and I invite your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'd like to look at a verse that has long been an interest of mine, although I've really never have spoken on it before. That's why I said earlier on I need his help, I need the Lord's help, and I'm going to stick to the scriptures, hopefully, as we have in our amount of time to divulge ourselves in this grand and great task that lies before us. Second Corinthians, I would like to lay out, first of all, what I want to do this morning. I want to talk first about how that we need to war against the deliberations of our day. I think also, secondly, I want to present how we need to war against the doubts of our own mind. And then thirdly, I want to talk about how that we can bring into captivity those deliberations and those doubts, bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5. I'll start with verse 4. This is a parenthetical statement of parentheses here uh, in which the Apostle Paul mentions in passing that our weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Verse 5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. Exalteth again We notice that word at the end. The translators are trying to convey the idea that what once was in the apostles' time in which he lived continues on in the day in which we're reading it right now. It's just a principle of this world that it exalts itself against its own creator. That's mind-boggling in and of itself, isn't it, when we think about that thought? Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against what? The knowledge of God. When you you look at that phrase, I want you to, in your mind, you think about the word of God. The words of God. The knowledge of God. The gospel of God. The truth of God. In other words, imaginations, so-called, and every high thing, so-called, exalts itself against the truth of the gospel. And now, Paul says, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in readiness to revenge, there's a semicolon, so I'll read verse 6. And having in a, re- uh, in a readiness to a revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. And of course, that verse 6 really pertains to the mission and the work which the Apostle Paul will, must do, have to do, in terms of dealing with the problems at the Corinthian church. So we're really dealing with uh, a lot going on here. And I thought maybe in the very beginning, in the outset, as we talk about these imaginations, or as the center column reference says, these reasonings or these deliberations... How we deal with deliberations today, these imaginations. But I want to first do it in light of the historical setting of the Corinthian church. That's who he's writing to. Paul the Apostle is now writing the second epistle to this wonderful church. It's a wonderful church because if you know your Bible, you remember Paul the Apostle said, I've begotten you through the gospel. In other words, Paul literally birthed them in the gospel kingdom. 
Now, he didn't birth them in regeneration because only that is a work of God, right? That's a birth from above. But Paul did say that he brought them in, in, this, in that sense, to being a disciple or a follower, that he, uh, uh, a member of the church, a Christian, and that's the work of the gospel. And so Paul is very much uh, moved by the Corinthian church. Now, he had heard, according to the first chapter of the first epistle from the house of Chloe, that some things were going on in the Corinthian church that he did not like. Now, obviously, you would be concerned, too, if you were the father, if you will, quote-unquote, of this church uh, in Corinth, and you were concerned about their well-being and about their moving forward as a church and a new covenant, and you heard a whole lot about their schisms and their their doctrinal problems and their practical problems. There's a whole host of problems in the uh, first letter that's listed for us to know. As many as 11, maybe more, that literally people could talk about. There were those who were parading around themselves better than others. One said, I'm of Paul, and one said, I'm of Apollos. One said, as if they were better than all the rest, I'm of Christ. You know, they had these certain classes of uh, theological distinction, if you will. Then, of course, some people were very uh, poor and given to poverty, and some people were on the other end of the pay scale, very wealthy. And so you had difficulties, uh, you had separation, even during the Lord's Supper. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he deals with those issues. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was fornication among the body, not even named, he said, among the Gentiles. That's how severe it was. And uh, the Apostle Paul wrote that letter after having heard uh, from Chloe. And he wrote them that they had to deal with that particular person in the church. In other words, they had to put him out because he was bearing the marks of the world and not as a Christian. So there's some heavy-duty subjects that are taking place in that first epistle. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, there was a great difficulty regarding uh, the people that came out of the culture and into the church to live according to the gospel truth, holy and pure lives. But they were kind of mangled in the culture. Remember, the culture in which the Corinthians lived was very paganistic, heathenistic, and that's saying it nicely. And so they had a lot of sexual perversions in their past, much like we read about and see about in everyday life on the TV screen or in the magazines today. We see that as a very prominent feature today in our life. And some of us may be so tainted by that that when we have been brought in by God's wonderful grace to be members of a New Testament church, that we have difficulty removing ourselves from that tainted past, you know. And so what we have is we have a conglomeration of some cultural upheaval that is very much included in the church. Paul went so far as to say that you're going to have a problem in your family when one member believes and one doesn't. And you remember he gave the instruction to the believer, hang in there, stay there, don't run, abide in the same calling wherein you have been called, don't cut and run. However, if the unbelieving depart, let them depart. For you're not in bondage in such cases. And so there was a lot of practical exhortation in the uh, first epistle to the Corinthians. 
Now, after he wrote that first epistle, he got word. He went into Macedonia. While he was in Macedonia, he got word from Titus. Titus brought up some good news. The church received the letter. The church dealt with that man who had been taken up in serious fornication. And that that, that man repented of his sin. And so there was a lot of good news going on because of that letter that he wrote. So much so that in this second epistle, he commends them on several occasions in here. However, there was still some stagnation hanging about. And the problem hanging about, that there was a faction in the church that was critical, not only critical, but conflicting against the credentials of the Apostle Paul himself. So there was, a, there was false preachers and teachers still huddling in the church at Corinth, and it had to be addressed. That's where we pick up in this particular 10th chapter. From the 10th chapter, 10, 11, 12, and 13, those four chapters are dealing with some very serious mindset of the Apostle Paul as he addresses the Corinthian church and basically is saying, I'm coming in the power of God with my gloves off. You see, up until that point. Now, as far as I know, I don't know how it ever fared. I'm sure uh, it was good. I know it must have been good, the outcome. But Paul was very serious because of these particular false brethren in the church were those who were at least preaching lies and dealing with his credentials. And, of course, he goes into that in, the, uh, in, these, in these chapters, how he deals with vindicating himself as an apostle of God. And you remember now, an apostle was like Christ on earth. An apostle had a particular calling. He was a representative of Christ himself on earth. And that's why he had a tremendous amount of leeway in terms of uh, liberty and particular gifts that they were used to demonstrate that. And so he said that he would come in the power of the Lord God. Notice what he says here in the, very, in, in the fourth verse of the 13th chapter. He says, For though he was crucified through weakness... And, of course, that's how the Apostle Paul starts out this 10th chapter. That he came to them, I beseech you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So, don't misunderstand the Apostle Paul in his, you know, taking his gloves off, coming in the power of God. You see, he wasn't necessarily coming with carnal weapons. See, the the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, are they? So, But he's taking his gloves off from a theological perspective and he's going to nail down the truth of God and if possible, if necessary, you can read this into these chapters too, that another exclusion would take place and that would be the exclusion of those who were uh, denying his credibility. But he said, Though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also, notice what he says, are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. These were warnings to the Corinthian church. I tell you, he took it serious. The church of God is in the embodiment of truth on earth today. Now, you're not going to go to the television screen and get gospel truth day in and day out, are you? Television screen is the greatest influence in the life of Americans today. 
Yet it's the greatest liar in the world today. We watch the television like it's gospel. What I'm trying to tell you is that the church of God is to be the embodiment, is to be the preserver of truth in the world. We are the body of Christ. The body. We represent the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The apostles did in the first century. The, apostles, the, the church was on, the church was on it was, you know, a tugboat in a harbor. Like a boat in the harbor needed help. The church needed all kinds of assistance, crutches. And some of that infrastructure that helped an infant church through its early processes were the apostles and signs and wonders, you know, and the deliberation of these things. But nowadays, we have the embodiment of Scripture. We don't have the apostles. We have the Scriptures. And the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. Now, you might be wondering why I'm saying those kind of things, but if you take a chance on any given Sunday and go somewhere else to see how it's unfolding, I think you'll understand what I mean. I have a good friend who was in the ministry who recently left his church down in Elk Ridge, Maryland. Now he's up here in Harford County somewhere attached to another ministry. And he would always tell me, you know, I just can't, I can't get a grip on what's going on. This person here wants the child to do this. That person over there wants his child to do something else. I mean, it was an unending desire to incorporate this, that, and everything else in the church to where the point was they literally got rid of the pulpit. There was no reason for preaching anymore. He was so despondent, he left that ministry. You know, when you first... It's cute, isn't it? Sunday school, bringing in instruments, all these other things to the point where eventually it's like a tidal wave and it overcomes the whole purpose of the truth of the church of God. To preach and teach the unsearchable riches of Christ. So it's kind of, you know, and that's the kind of world we live in today. And so having said that, the church had a rocky start and the Apostle Paul is now warning it. And we're going to deal now with these issues regarding these imaginations and how to cast them down. How to take that which is high and that exalts itself against. Now, obviously he's talking about philosophies of the day. Now, if you read in the book of Acts, we know that the Apostle Paul first goes to Athens. And then he goes to Corinth. And it's interesting, you know, they're right close together. They're in Macedonia in terms of, well, Greece, Macedonia to the north. But all of it basically is... Part and parcel of the same culture, the Greek culture. And of course, by the time the Apostle Paul was there, it was a Roman province. Years ago, of course, it was under the great leader of Alexandria the Great. And then eventually, of course, Rome defeated Greece back in, what, 46 or 47 B.C. And so for a hundred years, this city just lay dormant, unoccupied, until the Romans came and rebuilt it. But in their rebuilding process, they brought in a lot of the ancient Greek philosophy. That's why in Rome, there was a lot of these tendencies and even brought over into America in terms of uh, government, politics, and things like that. Architecture, things like that. Those pillars right there. You look at the grooves, the fluting of that lumber. It's Greek architecture. Okay, So a lot of America is built on, you know, arches and things like that. I don't know if we have them here, but... Anyway, very much influenced in the world because it was very widespread. It was popular. I mean, it was momentous, you know. It was like the 
Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, on steroids. Greek culture was very prominent. And so uh, it very much influenced the church, of course. And the Apostle Paul says that's what we're fighting against. We're fighting against those kind of philosophies that go against the knowledge of God as given in the gospel. The Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel of God. You know, one of the ways in which I compare uh, philosophy, you know, people want to know the difference between what's the difference between philosophy and truth. And I I really need to present this to, to show you what I mean by that. Philosophy basically is, is, is the love of wisdom, but it's really not concrete. They study things that really never existed, or if they did, never came to fruition. Uh, utopia of sorts. You know, philosophy always deals with those things. And anyway, back in Athens, that's all the people did. They were either, either learning some new thing or something, some philosophy. The Epicureans and the, the Stoics were always getting around. And, and that's why when the Apostle Paul went to Athens and he was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ and the God, the unknown God, who they ignorantly worshipped, that... You know, they wanted to know more about this new thing that the Apostle Paul was preaching. Because that's what they were into. Knowledge. And knowledge puffs up, you know. There's nothing concrete about it. And it's just amazing how many isms there are today that exist that are merely theories. Evolution is what I'm talking about. It's a philosophy. There's nothing real or concrete about it. But... But it's a philosophy, and these kind of philosophies go against the very grain of truth that's portrayed in the Bible. And so if there's no light in them, it's because there's no truth in them. There's no, they have no testimony to God's word. There's no, thus saith the Lord. And they're kind of floating out there. You know, philosophies are built on clouds, if you will. And they never really have any teeth or footed, you know. And one of the comparisons I make is that with, um, uh, with the Constitution of the United States. It's not a philosophy. What is it? It's an embodiment of certain truths. What particular truth is set forth in a Declaration of Independence that Abraham Lincoln, in the Gettysburg Address, pointed to or reminded his hearers of back in 1863, said, what, four score and seven years ago, our fathers presented a particular proposition, he said. Okay, I can't remember the whole thing, right? And he was referring back to the Declaration of Independence. When I think about our forefathers and the documents of our country, I think of two things. The Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, which came 12 years later. So Abraham Lincoln, in his mind, when he's talking up there in Gettysburg in 1863 about the founding fathers he's referring to in the first place, the Declaration that Thomas Jefferson wrote of independence. You know that revolutionary document. Well, what's the proposition that was set forth that he said, and the declaration said, is self-evident. He said that all men are created equal. That's a truth. It's not philosophy. So, just by way of comparing, the Constitution was built on a set of Judeo-Christian truths that have been tried and found, tested and tried, and to be found truthful. These truths are self-evident. And they come by way of God. 
they're unalienable. In other words, you know, there's something that somebody doesn't give them to you. They're not transferable. uh, The government doesn't apply them to you. They're yours by right of being a son of creation, if you will. They're yours by right. Now, the government was established to protect that right, to protect that right that you have, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with, with certain unalienable rights, right? A life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. What a wonderful, wonderful document. Well, let's just look at communism for a minute. Communism is a philosophy. Communism's promising a utopia that never comes about, delegated by a certain few called the government in power that control all the people. That's the difference in your mind between truth and philosophy. That's just a comparison. The Apostle Paul now is teaching the church that there's a difference between philosophy or reasonings, these vain imaginations, if you will, and the truth of God. Now, let's move on since we're getting to my second point, and that is imaginations. Now, the translators in the Greek here, this word imaginations is reasonings. So that pretty much covers our first point regarding philosophies because that's basically what reasonings are, deliberations. You know, I'm not saying that's a bad word. I'm just saying that basically surmises what we mean by philosophy. But the translators use the word imagination here. And I like that because they're conveying something that's very critical to the human makeup. And that is that we have been made by the purposes of God subject unto vanity. And that word vanity literally means emptiness. In other words, we're creatures that when we come into this world, we're empty vessels. Now, there may be some debate as to exactly what the creatures are referred to back there in Romans 8, when that was, when, when that was to be applied. Uh, there's a lot of different variations, interpretations on that particular text when I refer to that the creature was made subject unto vanity. But the point is still made regardless of where you place it and who you place it to, the point is still made that we as creatures, he called us creatures in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17, right? If any man be in Christ, he's a new what? Creature. So we're creatures. We're God's creatures, literally. But there's something unique about us. We're not God. We don't know everything. We come into this world like empty vessels. That's why parents raise and train and teach and discipline children. Because you have minds that need to be molded. You know, The word of God is the instrument by which we, as empty vessels brought into this world, need to be molded and fashioned. And what a beautiful thing it is. What a wonderful thing it is for a young child to know something about the knowledge of God. And about the creator of the universe without going to some textbook and knowing only these alternative views which are presented to children today. What a blessing it is. Okay. Well, imaginations. Imaginations. Proverbs chapter 6. You know there's six things the Lord hates. Right? I'm going to show you what they are in Proverbs 6 and verse 16. By the way, it's a real good way to re- how to remember that. <clears throat> there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. 
But if you remember that, you'll never forget where it is in the Bible. Proverbs 6 and 16. There's 16, verse 16, there's six things that the Lord hates. But notice in the, what he says. He says, these, these six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, even seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look. A proud look. And that doesn't mean, in, in my estimation, it means the eyes. The, the pride uh, and, and the lust of the eyes. You know, not only maybe somebody standing head and shoulders above the rest, which many probably Corinthians were doing. They were very proud people. But a proud look. You know, there's something about, you know, even Eve, uh, Eve in the, in the, the mother of all living, as Adam called her, in the garden, she saw the fruit with her eyes, and it was pleasant to her eyes. And we've got to be careful. God made us creatures. These are windows of the soul. And these eyes are the door that opens that we enter, regardless of what we're looking upon. You know, our eyes need to be pure. Our eyes need to be fastened on the, the purity of God, the goodness of God. So, a proud look, a lying tongue, a lying tongue. Notice the members, eyes, tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. And then he says, a heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Wicked imaginations. He goes from these elements... Like eyes and hands and feet. Notice it says, it says uh, feet that be swift running to mischief. And so the imagination is the precursor to evil action. That empty mind of yours, what do you fill it with? The imagination. It can run wild, can't it? Notice with me in Genesis chapter 6, a trademark of the world that, that, that was then there prior to the flood... Notice the characteristics that the Holy Spirit gives through Moses. He said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. And then he says, and that striving, by the way, my spirit shall not always strive, included the contending with that generation through the preaching of Noah. The Spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah to that evil generation. But my spirit, God says, will not always strive. I'm not always going to put up with that. Always remember, God has a limitation when it comes to evil. He's everlasting good, but he's got a limitation to evil. He will bring it to stop. He will end it. God will not allow evil to go on forever. He said, God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that word every in the Hebrew literally means holy. The whole man, the whole body, the whole person, the whole mind, the whole imagination was only evil continually. And so that's a trademark of that generation. David said in Psalms 39, he said, Man at his very best state is altogether vanity. That means empty. The imagination is empty. Outside of God's filling it with knowledge and the truth of the gospel, our minds are floating empty vessels waiting to be filled by whatever happens to come along. Be not tossed about by every wind of doctrine, the Apostle Paul said, because we're susceptible to that, aren't we? We're susceptible to that. 
Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As I relate to the problems of the Corinthian church, one of those problems was doctrinal. And they not only had practical problems, as we mentioned, like taking their own brothers and sisters to court. You know, here they had the greatest court in the world, the church, with the greatest minds of discernment to judge between what's right and wrong. The apostle, went so, he, he went so far as to say, let the least among you judge in these matters that pertain to this life. Because he had more confidence in the least than he did in the courts of the world. But anyway, in addition to the practical problems they had, the, the Corinthian church had some doctrinal problems. And one of the doctrinal problems comes like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because they did not understand or believe the resurrection of the body. And that's probably a runoff, some of the Greek culture. Because you remember now, one of the Greek prominent philosophies of that day was, I remember it, but I'll bring it to your attention if you don't. And that is that the Greek philosophers, they saw a distinction between the body and the soul and the spirit. And that's a good distinction, but they thought the body was all evil and without purpose and no good. And maybe that might be the reason why they dealt with it that way, too. You know, they had all kinds of problems with the body in terms of the way they live. Very impure lifestyles. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the apostle guards against that thought when he says, Your body is a temple, the Holy Ghost. And it's to be protected, preserved, not self-mutilated. It's to be prized and cherished, he said in Ephesians, you know, in that same culture. You need to be careful about that. You young people need to know that God has an interest in your body. Why? He owns it. The body's not for you. It's for the Lord. That's why the sin of fornication is so, so contrary to the body. It's not a sin like lying or something you might do like thieving, thievery, you know, with your hands or your feet running to do mischief. The sin of fornication is a sin against your own body because your body belongs to the Lord Your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. And you're sinning against that body, the Lord Jesus Christ, personally. And then, of course, that has spiritual ramifications as well. By joining your body to someone else, you become one. And there are sins of the flesh that will never leave you. Oh, I thank God for the pardoning grace of God. For the blood, the cleansing power, the blood of Christ. I'm sure a lot of the Corinthians could testify to the fact that they lived a horrible past and they had difficulty with that but the gospel of good news must have been really nice that there was pardon for sins past and it mattered not how dark their cast and oh my soul with wonder view for sins to come there's pardon too God has saved us from the past present and future sins that we ever would ever did ever have committed And what a blessed truth that must have been to the Corinthian church. But having this idea that the body was worthless and no good, they had a hard time with the bodily resurrection that the Apostle Paul was preaching. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he presents this big chapter on that doctrine. But this is what he says in terms of dealing again with these casting down these imaginations. Don't be filled with junk, in other words. And this is what he said. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel 
which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. He's establishing the fact. Remember that? You believe the gospel. You were baptized, and now you stand. However, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory. See, they were forgetting some things. They were forgetting the facts of the gospel. And part of the gospel is the hope of life everlasting, that Jesus will come again and he will raise us up from the dead and he will change his vile body into an incorruptible and immortal body. But a body nevertheless. Do you understand it? No, I don't. But he goes into it quite extensively in comparing it with, with various things known to man. For I delivered unto you first... Of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, I want to present something now that's very fascinating on how to deal with imaginations and so-called philosophies or reasonings. And he has it right here. I want you to keep in memory these things. That is what? These gospel truths. What? The Scriptures, the truth of the gospel. Because the way to combat philosophies is really knowing the truth. The truth shall set you free. In other words, facts. You know what we're dealing with today? We're dealing with facts. Solid facts. And I mentioned this last week with Brother Danny about another fact. Jesus Christ has come. That's a fact. Now, in the Old Testament, we read about a prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. That's the prophecy. That was a prophecy. But today, it's no longer a prophecy. It is a historical fact. What the Apostle Paul is saying right now, the way you combat these floating-in-the-air feather-type philosophies is by the solid truth of the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ was here. I witnessed him with my own eyes. He says, he was buried and he rose again the third day according to Scripture. And he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of the, above the five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also. Isn't that wild? The apostle Paul is bearing witness that Jesus Christ is risen, it's a historical fact. You know that no one of these 500 brethren, no one of these disciples, no one, including those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, which he mentions one, no one has ever came and denied publicly what they witnessed. They bore truth to it. There's nothing today, anywhere, of substantial value, of any validity that proves that Jesus Christ did not exist. I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the way to combat philosophy is through the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're dealing with a mind that's full of doubts. The imagination. It runs wild, doesn't it? That's why we got to stick to the facts. I remember a case back in the Old Testament when Joseph, you remember Joseph? He was unliked by his other brethren. I mean, they despised him and actually hatched a plan to kill him. But Reuben said, no, 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 let's not do that. Just throw him in that pit. Well, guess who came by? The Midianites. They actually had a plan to, uh, to sell him into slavery. But the Midianites did it for him. They sold him to the Ishmaelites, evidently part of the same group of people. 
Well, they had taken off the coat of many colors that his father Jacob gave him. Jacob loved Joseph, the son of Rachel, firstborn of Rachel. He had a special fondness for, for Joseph. So they take the coat back. They killed a goat. They mixed it with blood. Take it back to Jacob and said, here, look what we have. This is my paraphrase. This is what we got. They didn't say nothing more. You know what Jacob said? Jacob came to the conclusion, oh, my son was killed by wild animals. He was destroyed. They didn't say anything of the sort. They just showed him the coat of many colors that was dipped in goat's blood. There was no fact but because the imagination is full of emptiness and vanity, that he just said, well, he's dead and he's gone. And the ironic thing is that later on, when Jacob would, 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 would hear that Joseph was alive, the Bible says his heart fainted and he did not believe and he doubted that he was alive. That's the irony of it all. And so we can't trust... The Bible says, Whosoever trusteth his own heart is a fool. That's so contrary to the wisdom of this world. Another great example that I have for you about doubt and the instability of the mind is over there in Melita. The Apostle Paul, when he's traveling, he just was shipwrecked, and he's on this island as he's traveling north. They're in Melita. And, and it was cold, and it was raining. And here's the Apostle Paul, and he's meeting these barbarians. These are pure pagans. They have no, they're uncivilized. So anyway, they're building a fire, and the Apostle Paul gets some wood. He gathers some wood, he throws it into the fire, and all of a sudden, out comes a, a venomous snake, a viper, the Bible says. And it latched onto his hand, and evidently, you know, with jaw biting in. And, of course, the barbarians, they know that that snake was very dangerous. But the Apostle Paul, he shakes it off. He shakes it off and nothing happens. His hand didn't swell. You know what they said? They said he's a god. You know, at the beginning they said he was a god, but now they're saying he's a murderer. So these guys in these these imaginations, for no reason at all, at first he was a god, now he's a a murderer. So we can see how these... How our imagination can play on us. There's one other neat... There's a lot of different places in the Bible we can go to that can show you what the imagination can do. Really a lot of illustrations, but there's one here in Luke chapter 24 that I like to look at once in a while, and that was the the day... uh, Actually, the Lord had risen from the dead the same day. And so we have these two uh, disciples in, that are mentioned, that we had mentioned earlier. There they're walking on the road to Demaeus, or Emmaus, and a little bit from, from um, Jerusalem, verse 13, Luke 24. And it came to pass that while they communed together, they reasoned, I underline that word for this occasion, they reasoned, Jesus himself, as they reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Of course, their eyes were holding in other words, they were <clears throat> they could they didn't recognize who the Lord was. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, the scripture says, "What communication? What manner of communications are these that ye have one to another as ye walk and are sad?" And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said, "Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem?" 
Hast thou not known the things which are come to pass these days? Verse 21, but we trusted that it had been he, Jesus, which should have redeemed Israel. And besides this, today is the third day since these things were done. Now you would think that they would know something as they remembered many occasions when the Lord uh, spoke of his third day, his death, his burial, and on the third day he would rise again. The Jews said and remembered that he would rise from the grave. That's why they put barricades at his tomb, because he said he would rise from the dead. And so in case his disciples would come, they put a watch. They asked the Roman governor to put a watch, which he did. But the fact is, the disciples didn't. They trusted in something else. That's what I'm saying. They trusted in their vain and idle imagination instead of the facts of the Lord Jesus Christ that were presented to them in his earthly ministry. Well, let me come down to the close and I'll give you three simple things on how to imagine, excuse me, how to cast down imaginations and how to bring into captivity these vain thoughts into the obedience of Christ. Now, I want to say something here. I want to say something about Christianity first. And that is that Christianity does not prohibit a person's desire for knowledge. I believe knowledge is a good thing. But that's one, to say that is one thing. In other words, we're not, we don't prohibit people from free thinking. We don't uh, use any... We don't, the, the Lord Jesus Christ believed in the liberty of conscience, if you will. Uh, when others were in... When there were opportunities that the apostles... Uh, of course, I'm thinking back here to Luke chapter 13 right now. And, and, you know, there were others who were casting out devils in Jesus' name. The disciples didn't like that. They wanted the Lord to forbid them from doing that. And Jesus just simply said, he is not against us, is with us. In other words, he recognized that there's a variety of interpretations to his person. And we as Christians recognize that there are a variety of thought in terms of interpretations of the Bible. And we don't castigate people for it. We don't, uh, in some executive fashion, demand that they cease and desist from these alternate views, right? We don't lord over God's heritage. So when I say that we bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, I'm not saying that we minimize the freedom that each individual has in interpreting the scripture the way he or she sees fit. Now, we'd like to preach the truth and we'd like to, by the God's grace and by God's revelation, lead people from false doctrine and from ignorance and from, from reasoning so-called into the truth of the gospel of Christ and to preserve that. That's why, literally, the church is a training ground for young ministers. You know, we don't go to the seminary and seek a new pastor because the church is the embodiment of truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth. And the church has the responsibility of training young men in the ministry. And that's why 
there's a consistency from one generation to another as we teach so that they bear witness to the same things that are taught from the previous generation. That's very important. We're the testing and proving grounds of the truth of the gospel of Christ as to whether or not a man is called to preach the gospel. You are. You sit in judgment. You discern. And by the way, that word discernment underscores the validity of a conscience filled with the truth of God because the opposite of that word means a reprobate mind or a mind void of sound judgment. So the Lord's people are discerners of truth. That's why the Bereans, after hearing the gospel preached, they, 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 they searched the scriptures themselves to see if these things were so. And so, having said that, we move on to now what I wanted to share with you in terms of three simple things that you can take with you. And I've set it up in the acronym of SET. Because we're set for the defense of the truth of the gospel. Set. First word, letter S, for sacrifice. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, he said, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of what? By the renewing of your mind. The gospel is a rational truth to rational minds. It's truth. It's not fictitious mythology that's floating somewhere on a cloud. Do you feel it? No. It's rock solid truth. And may your minds be conformed to that truth. Paul said, I beseech you by the mercies of God. You know what he's saying? In another place he said, by the bowels the bowels of mercy, by his gut, by deep emotion and zeal and fervor and burning. See, by passion. That's what I'm talking about. That Christianity involves the whole person. So when we think about sacrifice, we think about our bodies, including our minds, our entire being. That's why Christianity calls people to be disciples, and that's why it's difficult that the Word of God fails in many of God's children's lives because it does not take root. The soil is contaminated. The soil is contaminated. Make sure your soil is not contaminated by the things of this world and receive the purity of God's word. Secondly, not only sacrifice, but engage. S-E. Engage your minds. And uh, here's a scripture I can't quote. Too much to it. (laughs) Uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. A well-known text. He said, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, next time you jump to read that newspaper that the newspaper well that you got online and um, next time you jump to read that newspaper think about this what he, the apostle Paul says notice the priority I want you to engage your mind best thing in the morning is to read some scripture best thing in the morning okay whatsoever things are true whatsoever things are honest whatsoever things are just equitable that's what that word just means equitable, fair. Whatsoever things are pure, 
whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good, of good report, if there be any virtue, add to your faith what? Virtue. Virtue. And if there be any praise, think on these things. Praise. Here's a man preaching the gospel of God's truth. Praise. Kudos, if you will. That's the Greek word for praise. We give that man kudos. Let's brag on men who brag on Christ. He is made of unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. The Lord Jesus Christ gets all the praise and the glory. If a man preaches Christ and him crucified, I will praise that man. I will honor that man in our day and age. Billy Graham, he said it this way. He said, he said a man is born... He suffers and he dies. Fortunately, there's a loophole. I praise him for that statement. Thank goodness that God has provided redemption for his people. Last one. Sacrifice, engage, last one. Take. Ephesians chapter 6 and 17. He says, And take the helmet of salvation... And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take the helmet of salvation. You see the picture of a helmet protecting your mind from the imagination. You see the helmet protecting you from doubt and dismay, from despondency, from that empty head of yours. You see that helmet and you take it. This scripture comes right out of the book of Isaiah. I don't think I knew it until I looked at the center column reference this morning. This reference goes back to the book of Isaiah. In 59, and it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Amazing, amazing. Another Old Testament scripture found in the in the in the jewel, another jewel found in the New Testament. He said, Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take the truth of God and take it in your mind and put that helmet of God's salvation. Remember the salvation of which Paul speaks? Keep it in memory, and you'll be saved from the isms of our day. He said, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance. Do you want to know how to persevere in the faith? How to contend for the faith? How to live out the faith? Now, I know we stumble. I know we have difficulty. But by the grace of God, we get back up. And I want to preserve in the faith. Do so by taking heed to the sword of the Spirit. May the Lord bless you. To bring every thought into captivity unto the obedience of Christ. We're glad you've been able to listen to this podcast. We invite you to come and worship with us on a Sunday morning. Our services begin with hymn singing at 10.30 a.m. Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church is located at 1707 Churchville Road in Bel Air, Maryland. If you've enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or in your favorite podcast application.